when I cross the overpass, I look over to my right and I see the amphitheater. And I was like, I stopped, took a deep breath and was like, oh, this is real. When I got there and saw all those people, I found my purpose. Like me, me seeing that, it's like, okay. I found out why my grandfather taught me what he did. Hello, podcast world. Welcome to episode 16 of Run Chats with Ron Runs NYC. So proud to sit down this week for a deep dive discussion with Coffee, aka That Coffee Boy. Coffee is the epitome of cool and well known in the New York City running scene. He's a husband, father, actor, filmmaker, Nike Pacer coach, and the founder of Define New York Run Club. After taking part in a late night protest on a Friday, Coffee ran a solo, unplanned marathon on Saturday in deep thought, struggling with what he could do from his side to help educate people. He came up with an idea to get people engaged and get a dialogue going, created a flyer, and launched Running to Protest, calling all run crews, all crews, one crew. There are many different ways to protest. Ours is to run. He put the word out on social and thought 40 to 60 people might show. Spoiler alert, around 800 people came out and running to protest was born. We discussed growing up in rural Aurora, North Carolina in far simpler times. Sports, from hoops to how coffee found his love for running. Running to protest, finding his purpose, finding his why. Systemic racism, Black Lives Matter, getting justice for victims. Representation, keeping the convo going, and his much acclaimed short film about the people, which he was inspired to write after having difficult discussions about police brutality with his 17-year-old son. This is a moving, powerful conversation, and I am so grateful for Coffee's candor on all that we covered. So let's dive on in and take a listen. Hey, good morning, Coffee. Welcome to Run Chats with Ron Runs NYC, man. I'm so excited to have you on here. What's up, man? I appreciate you um, asking me to be a part of this. Thank you. Oh, man, it's definitely my pleasure. Um, so proud of what you're doing in the run community. Um, and I think so many of us are uh, galvanizing everybody, bringing everybody together uh, with running to protest. That's huge, huge stuff. Uh, but for the Run Chats audience who are not from maybe the New York City area or may not know of that coffee boy who has a big presence on Instagram and in social and, and certainly in our New York City running community, um, I thought it might be best for you to just start, just do a little intro on yourself just to kick everything off. What's up, everyone? Uh, my name is Coffee. I'm just a simple guy. I mean, to be honest with you, I'm a black guy, always been black, living in New York, um, love running. Love my family, um, love being happy and just love doing the things that I have in mind, whatever goals that I have set for myself. I just love, you know, accomplishing those things. Um, 
without anything interrupting or interfering me um, as a test to myself to see, you know, how far I can actually go. And it just so happened that, you know, with everything that's going on now with the climate outside of your house, um, you know, it's just something that I wanted to partake in, in in the way that I felt like I can loan my voice. And that would that just happened to be, you know, running. Cause I, you know, I'm I'm a huge runner. I, I love running. Uh, my day isn't complete unless I get a run in. And that can consist of anything from three to 20 miles, uh, depending on how I feel for that day. And um, I just felt like this was my way of adding on to or helping, you know, someone to become knowledgeable of Black history. And that pretty much, you know, sums up who I am as an individual because of how I was raised um, by my grandparents and my mother. So that's what sums me up. That's coffee. C-O-F-F-E-Y, not the drink. <laughs> yes, when I was listening to your pod with uh, Derek on Behind the Wheel podcast, I was surprised to find out you've never drank coffee. No, I wasn't, uh, you know, the sm- I, I love the smell, but I don't know. It was just something about me that was never interested in trying to figure out how it tastes, I guess. And now, you know, I'm older now, so nah, I'm good without it. I made it this far without it. I'm, I can live the rest of my life without it now. Yeah, I, I think that's the way we all are, man. Once we get to a certain point, if we haven't rolled it, you know, haven't gone down that road, usually just like, I'll take a pass, man. I don't, yeah. I don't need it at this point. I don't need it at this point. So let's talk a little about you growing up, because I know you came from a small town in North Carolina and, you know, dirt roads, very small, you know, how much different it could possibly be than NYC and Brooklyn, you know, where you're hanging today. So what, what was that like for you as a kid growing up? Um, I mean, I'm not going to lie. Me growing up in Aurora, um, now looking back, I actually love the fact that, you know, I had a front yard and a backyard and could go in the woods and climb trees and, you know, do all sorts of kind of things. But when I was that age, I was wishing to be from New York because I was already visiting New York. And I was admiring the fact that, you know, they had a corner store at every corner and they had trains to get around and, you know, they had buses to get to A through B. And we didn't have that in in North Carolina where I'm from, you know, population is like 500 people. There are no stoplights, dirt roads. Yeah, of course. Um, But if I wanted to go somewhere, I always had to ask someone, you know, to take me. And, and even when I came of age with my license at age 16, I had to ask someone to borrow their car. So I was always in love with the friends that I had made on the block that my great aunt lived on in Queens and Cambria Heights, that if they wanted to go somewhere, all they had to do was just ask. And if there was a yes, they could just go walk to the train or walk to the bus or walk to the dollar van and just go to their destination. So I was fascinated by that. And then, um, but going back, Now, I actually love the fact that I grew up in the country because I see the difference, you know, um, I see the difference in being a kid, you know, here as an adult, I noticed that kids here, you know, there's so many different schools, but these schools actually doesn't apply to, you know, sports the way that Southern sports do, what Southern states do. You know, here you can have a football team, but that doesn't necessarily mean that 
that school has a football field, you know, and those are the things, the advantages that, you know, we actually have in, in North Carolina, whatever school you went to provided a basketball court, you know, a football field, a track and field, you know, we had all those things. So it was like a tight knit and these, that's, that's the advantage that I see. And also when it comes to school, you know, you can be living on the same block here in New York, but you actually go to different schools in Aurora, you only have one school to go to. So it kept us as a tight knit to the, you know, depending on what age you were. So you knew everybody in the town. And I think me growing up, because I was kind of wild. So I think, you know, me growing up, the fact that everybody knew me kind of helped because if I did anything or got out of line, they could just call my grandmother, you know, and, and, and that would be fixed just like that. So here you can just go and do whatever and nobody may never know. So I love the tightness and I love the wilderness and um, and I love having a place to go back to. You know, if we ever want to leave New York, then we can go home to where I was raised because it's still there and it still sits there. So and my kids love it down there. So that's like a, you know, a vacation spot for them. That's great. So you get a chance to bring them down there and show them what it was like for you growing up in such a small you know, small, small community, again, where you literally know every single person. And uh, yeah, wow, what a different experience from being in this big city, in this great place that we know where we have all the culture and, and you know, every block and building and architecture is so different. But uh, it sounds like your grandparents definitely shaped you and had a big impact on you growing up where uh, they were real important figures to you um, as a kid growing up, teaching you values, all that stuff. Yeah, no, they, they they did. But, you know, you don't realize that when you're young, you know, I, I wasn't wise. <laughs> I wasn't wise enough to understand what they was doing. I became wise enough as I got older and, you know, and Lord forbid, you know, they I mean, they, they passed away. So everything that I say or whatever it is that I do now is in the grace of, you know, grace of God. But they they and, and also to make sure that it shine lights on light on them so they wouldn't be disappointed. So whatever I touch is always, would they be happy about this? You know, what would they say? Or what, what didn't they say? You know, they, they, they trained me well enough to become a man, the man that I am today to understand my rights and my wrongs. And I have wrongs, you know, I have wrongs. We all do. No one is perfect, but I also have rights and, and, and the rights are what they taught me. And for me to continue, you know, those conversations with um, my kids, because the same way that I value my grandparents and my mom and my stepfather, you know, and my aunts and my uncles, the same way I value them, I want my kids to be able to value, you know, their parents and um, which is us, me and my wife and, you know, their grandparents as well. So it's just, uh, you know, it's just something that goes down within the family line. And making sure that they are a okay because my grandparents made sure that I was a okay, and my grandfather passed um, when I was young, when I was thirteen. But he taught me so much for in those thirteen years that now I look back and I'm like, wow, he, it's not like he had a long time to do that. So he knew what he was doing, you know. And my grandmother, you know, bless her soul, um, rest in peace. She um, she kept she had what four boys under the under the roof and I mean three boys under the roof and she raised us in a great way man she made sure that she kept it up and she kept us in church you know she was a missionary uh so we had to go to church every Sunday every Tuesday every Friday 
And then when sports came about, it was just, you know, every Sunday. So those things that she um, instilled in me, I'm still trying to do that now. You know, I have a set of twins that are seven. I have a um, nine-year-old daughter. And some of it, you know, is too young for them to understand. But I do sprinkle little things here and there. So when they do become of age, that they actually know the exacts of what I'm talking about to them. That's great that you're passing those lessons on. And uh, it's just, it's wonderful. I mean, I was raised by a single mom, you know, with three three of us, uh, my two brothers and I. Uh, my dad was just not really super involved in our lives. I mean, he lived close by, but he didn't get to our sports games. He didn't do any of that stuff. And, you know, my mom taught me how to throw a baseball and, and football and every other sport. And man, when we came home bloody from the park coffee, she'd give us a look like out of the corner of her eye, like, what are you doing back here? Like, I'd be like, yeah, I'm like, you know, gushing blood, mom. She's like, yeah, you know where the band-aids are. Go clean yourself up get back to the park. You know, if I said anything about, you know, playing with my older brother and his friends were twice my size, you'd be like, well, if you ain't fast enough or strong enough or tough enough to play with them then play with your own friends, you know, like, you know, she raised us to be tough. And, you know, I think, you know, not having that, you know, home life dad there every single day um, to instill that kind of spirit, she wanted to make sure we weren't soft and that we were, uh, tougher. And, you know, like it's just, uh, it's stuff that you remember like that. You know, I, all those lessons my mom taught me, that's the same stuff I pass along to, to my son and, and my brothers pass along to their children and, you know, hard work and, uh, you know, Hey man, sports were, could be taken off the table from us at any time. You talked about getting in trouble or whatever, man, we were always getting in some kind of trouble. We were good in school. Like we got good grades, but man, I was always testing boundaries and doing stuff I wasn't supposed to be doing, man, jumping off roofs and climbing up buildings and just doing crazy ass shit that you shouldn't be doing. But you know what? That's part of being a kid. And we would go to the park coffee the entire day. Like we left at eight o'clock in the morning on our bikes and we came back and it was pitch black. We were gone the whole day playing football, basketball, baseball, whatever, run, you know, chasing each other in the park. It didn't matter what the game was, climbing trees. You know, I wish in some regards our kids from today had that kind of experience because not bombarded by TV and screens and iPads and phones. And, you know, it was a simpler life, man. We were just out there doing stuff. Yeah. Technology, man. Technology is what we didn't have on our side back then. And I'm, you know, like you said, I'm, I'm happy we didn't have it back then because we actually got the chance to learn what outdoors actually um, had, you know, what it provided for you. Like I yeah, the climbing trees and all that, man, look, I'm lucky to be here because I used to climb trees. And, and I remember the, the last time I climbed a tree, I fell 20 feet something down. Like, I, I mean, I didn't break anything. But I was, since I was such a young kid, but I remember falling, I hit down there every branch before hitting ground. Oh, man. <laughs> and then I remember um, my grandmother telling us that we couldn't go in the woods on a certain day, and we went anyway. <laughs> and because we didn't listen, I don't know if you ever heard of a bra switch. No. You know, trees that where these pointy stick, they, it's like a bra where they're very sticky and they can stick into you. Oh, Okay call them bra trees and bra switches um in the south and while we was running through the side while we was running outdoors in the woods she called us to come back so we heard her so we was trying to sneak back running so she wouldn't be able to hear us running through the woods and a bra switch stuck in my eye oh damn so when we got back to her she had to rush me to the hospital and for like two weeks man um 
I had to wear these shades where they was protecting my eye from the sun because, you know, they wasn't, they didn't know if I would be able to see a hundred percent out of my left eye again. Like it was, yeah, we was just doing all kinds of stuff that we had no business doing down there, but it was fun. You know, it was fun and we didn't have the social media aspect. So, you know, like for instance, you ever seen the show Stranger Things? Yes. So imagine what those kids was doing, like riding bikes, venturing back in the woods and all that. That's what we was doing. That's why I'm so in love with that show because it, it kind of like reminds me of my childhood when I was in Aurora. Yeah, that's uh, that's great stuff though. And they're, and they're fun memories, man. And we learn from getting into trouble like that, man, because you know we get the death stare when we come home, you know, because it's like, I told you not to go in those woods on this day or I told you not to be climbing on that roof again and you fell through and you know you come home and you're bleeding all over the place. But Hey man, lessons are lessons are definitely learned. So, um, as a kid in North Carolina, basketball was your thing, right? It was not as a as a kid. Well, you played football and other sports too. I remember baseball. You played. You pretty much played everything, right? Yeah, I play. I played basketball. I play um, baseball. And I play. Um, well, I was a boxer, and um, lightly football. I didn't really, you know, the coach didn't really want me to play football. He didn't feel like, you know, me getting hit for free would be idea for me to be able to, because, you know, football season came right before basketball season. So the basketball coach, Coach Jackson, was too concerned that if I play running back or wide receiver and I get hit the wrong way, then he'll lose his star player. There you go. Basketball. So I was like, okay, um, I won't play. But I damn sure did play backyard football. And I think that was worse because you didn't have any type of equipment on. You know, you didn't have – um, shoulder pads or you, know, you just played tackle football and I got hurt in the backyard plenty of times playing <laughs> playing footballs but you know it wasn't high school it was just backyard ball yeah I agree those games could get way rougher man because like you said no shoulder pads no padding no nothing boom somebody wants to come up with a Ronnie Lott hit or something and just drill you you know playing in the backyard or even up at the local park but yeah you you take some good shots that way like I said I was getting chased by my older brother and his friends who were twice my size but I know that had a lot to do with me being fast man because I was running for my life out there man they didn't they didn't pass me no no breaks at all man if they caught me they were gonna they were gonna lay me out so I had to work yeah. on my moves and acceleration. And if I didn't, if I didn't, I was going to take a beating, man. No question. Yeah. And you don't run uh, home to mom about that stuff either, man. That ain't going to work out well. Oh, nah. They're going to send you, like you said, your mother sent you, you know, right back out after you put the band-aid on yourself. She told you to go back to the park. That was, you know, tough love. Yeah. That's what I grew up on. Like, I love the fact that I came up on tough love. Tough love actually helped me out today. So, you know, especially here in New York. You know, it's, 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 you can't be, I mean, I'm going to just be honest, you can't be soft living in New York, not outside. Like, you're lucky if you know your next door neighbor. So, you know, it's tough love everywhere you go. No one cares about what you have to do or where you got to go. Whatever it is you got to do, you better just go get it done and don't worry about how somebody outside the doors treat you. Just keep moving. And that comes from that tough love, man. Yeah, I agree. And I'm, I'm very happy. Uh, maybe I didn't, you talk about that too, when you're younger, you don't think you don't have the the brains or you don't have the, uh, let's say the wiseness at that age at eight or 10 years old to realize why that's being done or why you're being treated in that way. But 
I thank my mom for it a million times. My mom's still with me. I'm lucky to still have her. She's going to be 88. I thank her all the time. And I just say, I thank you for, you know, never missing anything, always being there for us. But man, she challenged me in every aspect of my life. And it's made me the person I am, you know, you know, still running marathons, doing the things that I do, you know, trying to give back to the community. That all comes from the spirit that she instilled in me, you know, the way your grandfather taught you all these great lessons, even though he was only with you till he was 13. It doesn't matter. Somebody doesn't have to be with you a lifetime to teach you important stuff. And you learn it, you absorb it. And someday in your life, you want to give back and you want to start uh, doing these things. And I know from my case, I know I'm thankful. And I know, you know, definitely, you know, from what I've heard listening to your other pods, I know your grandfather's had a big impact on you. And it's it's led you to become the person you are today. Yeah, no, he he, he did. He He's who taught me baseball. He, you know, he's the one who said, you know, um, you better not never start a fight. Like, don't ever, ever start a fight. But if someone starts a fight with you, you make sure that they can't start a fight with someone else, you know. And, and we understood what that meant back then, you know. So so we were never the ones who started anything. We was just there to, you know, if someone came our way and we try to, you know, get away from it and they kept it up, then we made sure that, you know, we did what we were supposed to do. And, you know, and, and, and he knew you know, judo, you know, he knew karate. He knew, you know, my grandfather was, my grandfather was a weapon. He was a weapon, man. He built himself as a weapon, you know? And um, so that's why he was like making sure that, you know, his kids as well as his grandkids um, came up how he was taught, you know? And, and he went through, you know, those slavery days, you know, he remember all that stuff. And that's why, you know, not just my grandfather, but my grandmother too, you know, that's why they were so big on teaching us about Emmett Till. You know, that's why they were so big on teaching us about Martin Luther King, um, you know, Malcolm X. Like, you know, the difference in the two, but the two actually had the exact same um, mindset of trying to make things better for us. Although they knew that they may not even be here to see when that day come and, and, and to be here like in 2020 and seeing the exact same thing. That's 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 what bothers me. Because, you, you know, one, one thing that I will say, you know, my, my, my great grandparents, my great great grandparents were sick and tired. My great grandparents were sick and tired. My grandparents were sick and tired. My parents, my mother was sick and tired. And here I am now talking to you and, and I'm sick and tired. I'm going to make sure that my kids don't have to say that they're sick and tired because it's, it's, it's like a, a repetitive pattern that's constantly going on and on and on and on and on. And we have to figure out how we can stop it when we shouldn't have to figure that out at all. We should be able to, you know, be like the white man, the white woman, you know, living the exact same way. And it's not about blacks versus whites. It's about blacks versus racism, blacks versus white supremacists, you know, black versus all these bigots that feel like that the lessons that they was taught in school because the schools were forced. Some of the schools was forced to teach about Christopher Columbus, it's false knowledge, you know, teach about the Star Spangled Banner, false knowledge. You, no one talks about the third verse in the Star Spangled Banner where this Francis Scott Key guy had slaves. They, they kept that out. So with all that said, man, that's, that's why we, where we at now in 2020, and we got to figure this thing out. And, 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 and the way to do that is to just keep constantly, keep coming, keep coming, keep coming the exact same way that we come in now. And we're not going to start marching. We're not going to stop running. We're going to make sure 
that every last one of us are treated the exact same way that white Americans are treated. And that's all we're asking for. We're not asking, we're not saying, hey, white, you know, white America, we, we hate you. That's never been the conversation. Um, Colin Kaepernick didn't kneel um, when the Star Spangled Banner was played because he hated white America. No. And it's sad that it took four years for white Americans to even see that. And that's not all white Americans now. I'm talking about, still, I'm still speaking about the bigots, the white supremacists, and, you know, and those three letter words, the KKK, whatever they call themselves today. I'm talking about those type of people, man. And, and that's what we have to stop. And that's what we're trying to stop. And I won't stop until it stops. Because again, I do not want my kids saying, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. Well, that's powerful stuff, Coffee. And um, it's a bunch to unpack. And uh, yeah, I think, um, you know, speaking as a white person, speaking on, you know, as part of the white community, you know, like, unless you've been followed by a police officer for no reason, Unless you've walked into a mall like a Macy's or something and had some security guard following you around again for no reason other than the fact that the color of your skin is black. Um, Unless you were treated substantially different by a teacher or a coach, again, because of the color of your skin, it's, it's just very hard for people, you know, from the white community to try to understand what that is all about. And that's pretty much what I've been spending most of my time since all of this stuff has really come to the surface, just trying to do, trying to put myself in a person of color shoes and understand how this has all been going on for hundreds of years. It's not recent. None of it's recent. That's why you're talking about all your generations there being sick and tired. That's why it was such a powerful statement. And you not wanting to have to have your kids endure that. That's a huge goal. Um, And I think, you know, as a a father, you know, you have four kids. I have only one. You know, my mission on this earth is I want to leave this planet a better place than it was when I was here, you know, for my son and for his children and for their children to come. And that's people treating each other equally, man. It's not like it's a big ask. It's a simple ask. You don't get treated differently because you're black you shouldn't get treated differently because you're a woman, you're Asian, or anything else. Um, but this movement isn't about all those other groups. This is about Black Lives Matter, and it's about the police, you know, being abusive, killing people with no justification, no cause, with numerous cases here, with Ahmaud Arbery, with George Floyd, with Elijah, um, you know, all of these recent cases, Breonna Taylor, you know, if you haven't done the work as a white person to understand what each of those instances were, it's hard to understand the outrage. It's hard to understand the anger and it's hard to understand the frustration um, coming from the black community. But I think for my peers, the people that I surround myself with, my friends, the people that matter in my life, we're doing work right now. We're paying attention to what's going on. We're sharing those stories. And we're trying to have those tough conversations. Before you know, you and I came on the air today. I just shared with you, um, just visiting with a friend over the weekend, and you know, we were just talking about the Breonna Taylor case back and forth on a run, the way runners do. That's what we do. Coffee, you know that. You get out whether you're with your Nike pacing group and a large scale group, or maybe you're just doing a one on run with somebody at, at twelve o'clock at night. You get into conversations, and sometimes 
they go smoothly and sometimes they don't. And what I was really proud of from this conversation was we went back and forth on it and it was a significant back and forth, you know, with pushback on both sides and her brother happens to be a cop. And so it was not, we weren't coming at this from the same mindset, right? Coffee. We weren't on the same page. And after the run, I didn't feel great, bad, or indifferent about her or about the conversation, but I felt good about myself that I presented all the facts that I knew. And it made my day this morning when she texted me and told me that she had done a lot more work to look into Breonna Taylor's situation. And she really didn't know a lot of the stuff that I had mentioned. And when she wrote me back and sent me that text, it made my day. So I just want you to know that, you know, this is, this is how we bring about change, or at least that's how I see it. You know, that if we can get into these conversations and we could get people to at least open their mind to what's actually happening, what really happened, you know, that maybe we can start to bring about change. Yeah, no, I, I totally appreciate you um, doing that. That's, you know, that's one of the main reasons why um, I decided to do, you know, the run into protests, all crews, one crew um, run was for, you know, people like you to actually reach out to whoever your friends may be and speak to, you know, the one, the individuals that don't understand or, you know, probably, I'm not going to say that they don't want to understand, but probably didn't do the homework. And you made her not, you know, you didn't force her, you made her do homework and she went and did it and came back with, you know, a text to say, hey, I, you know, in a way it's like saying she was thanking you for bringing that awareness to her because she, she never would have gone to check, check it out herself without you verbalizing what you know about Breonna Taylor's case. So I appreciate you for that. And um, that's the main reason, you know, these runs started, um, why I started the runs. And that's the main reason why I'm going to continue um, doing these runs um, once a month and educating, you know, from a whole totally different, you know, perspective, you know, started the, the first one was about hearing different people backgrounds and how we are so similar, but somewhat different, but all have been brutalized somehow, some way. Um, and the second one was about Seneca Village that, you know, thousands, if not, no, uh, let me rewind. Millions of people have ran Central Park. I'm saying thousands. No, millions of people have run Central Park. And I guarantee you, maybe 10 or 15% probably only knew about Seneca Village. And that's, I feel like that's my thing. That's my doing of teaching people. And not only white America, um, people of color and black Americans too. You know, we all don't know our own history the way that we should know because it wasn't taught in school. And you feel like, you know, when you're in school and you're being taught, then you feel like, okay, well, this is the ultimate. This is the highest level. Um, they're going to teach us what we need to know. Then you become a certain age and you realize, wait, half of the things that they taught us was a lie. It was made up. So what is it that we need to know? And now you got to go and teach yourself. So you kind of feel as, a, as me, as a black man, black American, I feel cheated all the way from kindergarten through 12th grade and somewhat college as well, because they keep thrilling, you know, they keep thriving, they keep throwing all these things at you at every level from, you know, Columbus Day to Thanksgiving. 
Like, think about that. Every year you celebrate it, Columbus Day. Every year you celebrate it, Thanksgiving. But there was no truth in neither one. So it was already fabricated to make us believe at such a young age that this is what we have to take in. This is what happened, you know, and 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 then when Thanksgiving come, you know, we, we draw a pilgrim, pilgrim and, and when we draw Indians and the pilgrims were the nice people. No, it wasn't that way. But the teachers didn't, I'm not going to say care. They, they didn't teach you. They taught you the textbook way because that's how it was in the textbook. And the textbook, whoever written that textbook knew that, had to know that they was writing a lie. And, and you can get away with those things when you're teaching kids. But in today's society, because of social media and because we are awake now, you can't get away with that. You can't get it. Thanksgiving, uh, they about to change their name, which is great. And Columbus Day, it's already a wrap for that. So you can't get away with what they got away with when you and I, you know, was in grade school or, you know, middle school, high school. You, they, they can't do that anymore. And, and that's what I'm out for education. You know, that's what my film is about, about the people, educating people. Black Wall Street. Black Wall Street was never taught, Ron, in school. I never heard of Black Wall Street being spoken about in school, but my grandparents told, taught us about Black Wall Street. But, you know, we're talking about when there was no GPS maps, you know, in the 90s and 80s and 90s. You know, we didn't have that. And, but they taught us about Tulsa, Oklahoma. They taught us about the rich doctors, you know, the rich business owners. They, they taught us all that. But we still couldn't go to school to say, hey, why aren't you guys talking to us about Black Wall Street? Because those teachers didn't even know about Black Wall Street. You know, my history teacher was a white lady. She didn't know anything about Black Wall Street. As deep as she got, it was probably about um, the North and South War. That was as deep as she could get. And she couldn't go any deeper than that. And once you get to college, you know, you're on a higher level and you're like, wait, I don't know any of this stuff. But they still not talking about Black Wall Street. So in my film that was written literally four years ago, when my son was a senior, about to be a senior in high school, I wanted to share light on Black Wall Street. And, you know, and, and we filmed it. We wrote it four years ago, filmed it two years ago premiered it one year ago and in the film circuit and uh, and then um, made it live June of this year because of what was going on. Um, we didn't want no distribution deal for the short film because I felt like, you know, let's put this out for free now because the film, Ron, was to be honest, was to prevent what happened to Mr. George Floyd, Mr. Amal Arbery, Miss Breonna Taylor, Mr. Elijah McClain, and Mr. Trayvon you know, Martin, and, and you know, et cetera, et cetera, like to all the victims that we have seen. This film, when you do watch it, you can go to aboutthepeoplefilm.com to watch it. When you do see it, you will understand what I'm talking about when I say it was to prevent those situations. And it also educated people because one of the things we talked about was Black Wall Street, and I made sure that we talked about how the Star Spangled Banner wasn't written for people of color or African-Americans because they never sung the third verse. They kept that third verse away from us for a reason. So, you know, we spoke on all of that in the film. Um, it's not a documentary. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's scripted and it's as real as it can get. 
And when the producers, um, Stephen Garcia and, and Jeff Caligari came on board, you know, they they loved it and they they made sure that they wanted to keep it as real as possible after we had a conversation, because that was one of the things that I talked to them about. And after they read it, man, they was like, yeah, we're going to make sure like no, we're not editing any of this out for people to understand it. People should understand this. And if they don't understand it, then they need to go and find out why they don't understand it. And that's what About the People is about. You know, it's, it's, it's basically concerned pillars in the African-American community meet with one goal in mind, and, and, and that's change. We, we, we absolutely need change in 2020. In 2020, <laughs> we're still talking about change for African-Americans and, and people of color. And, 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 and you know, we, talk, we say African-Americans and we say people of color. White America look at people of color as being black. And, and, and so I'm in between like saying, you know what? I, we all black, like we are. So sometimes I just say black, black, and black meaning Hispanic, black meaning Muslim, black meaning, because, you know, the tone of our skin is, is so much similar. So if I happen to say black, 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 and not people of color, I'm talking about all of us on the same spectrum. That's for the audience to, to, to understand where I'm coming from. Well, so much of what you just talked about in there is it's all about education, coffee. Um, it starts from us being little kids, you know, shuffling into pre-K or kindergarten, uh, whether it's a public school, a private school, a Catholic school, a faith-based school, it doesn't matter. Uh, the textbooks and the curriculum that's put in front of us as kids is just not addressing any of these things at all. And um, I think the power of social media, the strength of social media, the change that social media can bring about is uh, driving awareness, real awareness. Certainly Black Wall Street, never heard of it before, totally not aware of it in any way until I started doing my deeper dive personally on a lot of these things. I was not aware that this thriving community existed in Tulsa um, with you know tremendous amount of money and commerce and all black businesses and thriving and doing well. Did not know any of that history at all. Never heard about it. Didn't exist as far as I was concerned. It had never been presented to me before. So this is this is how we learn. Um, and the only way you can learn is to have an open mind and to be willing to do some work and to do some research. So, you know, I wanted to, you know, leave your movie for later at the end because it's it's powerful. And, um, you know, there's there's just a lot for us to talk about on that. So I just want to table that for a little bit for right now. Um, and I want to come back to that. Um, and, and anything we talk about will be in the show notes. There'll be links obviously to your page, you know, not just your Instagram page, but your movie page and uh, your run club page and all the other areas where people can, you know, hit you up and have contact with you and get a dialogue going because that's the purpose of this podcast, man. That's the purpose of having a platform is to give people a voice to share their story and to get people thinking about what the hell is going on in this world we're living in. And how do you go from being on the sidelines and uneducated and unaware to getting up off the couch and finding some way to get involved, finding a way to educate yourself, finding a, a way to learn about things that are going on. And then how can you help make change in the status quo? 
um, because that's, that's what I'm about. I mean, you have four kids. I have one. I want this world to be a better place for my son and, and his children and their children and your, your um, sons and daughters' children and, and the children that they may have as well. I want it to be a place that's equal and more diverse and more representative and, and just a, a better place. It's just not, it's not where we need to be right now. And I think things are just heightened, the, uh, the anguish and anxiety that so many people are facing. A lot of it just comes from the fact that we've just been beaten down by this pandemic for months and months and months. And then this just, just absolute, you know, news cycle of murder and murder and murder and people dying for no reason. It's just, it's just really getting people to a point where I think, you know, they're exhausted. And I think as runners, I think that's where you and I, that's how I think as runners, as people, you know, we can continue to move forward and continue to take the tough stuff on, right? We're used to going and running marathons. We're used to doing long runs and mileage. We're used to just saying, hey man, I got to get my shoes on. I got to, I close my podcast on. I tell people to lace them up and get out the door because no matter how bad a day you had, no matter how frustrated you are, no matter how angry you are about the status quo, if you get out there and run how, I don't care how many miles it is, at some point, that's where the clear thinking starts to develop. And I know that's where your idea came from coming up with running to protest. And, you know, to me, that is such a big piece. And, you know, to reach out, you know, to the running community, calling all run crews, all crews, one crew, like, I mean, you send that message out there, you know, on Instagram and on social and in your mind, you know, I don't even know in your mind what you may have thought, like what sort of, you know, response you might get, what sort of reception, but I'm pretty sure I heard you on Runners in New York City with uh, Leanne and Chris say, you know, maybe you were thinking like 60 or 70 people would show up. And then, I mean, dude, like 800 people or something like that show up. I mean, how the hell did that make you feel, you know, to be out there that day? Just talk to the Run Chats listeners and just tell people, man, how the hell did that make you feel? Um, It was great. It was actually a great feeling. Um. I was actually expecting 40 to 60 people. Oh, wow. Okay. Because I, I, I already had a conversation with a couple of people about my idea that um, sparked on me when I was running um, a long run on a Saturday. And um, they all say, you know, that's actually pretty splendid. And, you know, people would, people would, people would show up for you coffee. And I was like, yeah, you know, even if one person show up, that'd be good enough for me. So maybe 40 to 60 people. And when the day came and um, I was actually out there and while while being out there, it was just more like I saw these people, half of these people, half of these people didn't know me personally. So they didn't know, you know, who to expect. And as I looked around and seeing all these people coming from different ways that, you know, from behind me, from the front, from the left, from the right, they all had on white T-shirts. So I knew I knew it was for running to protest all crews, one crew. So I actually stopped and teared up a little bit because I was like, wow, okay. Um, that's support right there. Like that's major. And that was before I even crossed the overpass to get to the amphitheater. When I crossed the overpass, I look over to my right and I see the amphitheater. It's crazy crowded. 
And I was like, I stopped, took a deep breath and was like, oh, this is real. And then when I got there and saw that, it was, I guess that's what my voice is long made for. I found, I put it this way. When I got there and saw those people, I found my purpose, if that makes sense. I found out why my grandfather taught me what he did. So that's, that's what I, that's, that, that was the answer for that. Like me, me seeing that, it's like, okay. That's why he taught me what he did because now I can loan all that information out and bring them to my world and show them, hey, this is what, you know, Emmett Till was about. Hey, this is what Seneca Village was about. Hey, this is what my grandparents taught me, not knowing why they was doing it. But now I understand and I see why they was doing it because it's all coming out at the right time. Never before this did I have any type of conversations this deep and this heavy about, you know, black history. You know, we made, my wife and I would converse about it every now and then, um, you know, but I never had to go back to back to back to back to back to back, you know, and, and make sure that I know what I'm talking about uh, and make sure I'm accurate because my grandparents made sure that they was accurate. And it's not like every encyclopedia um, had all this information because back then, you know, when it came to any black historian back then, black history was being deleted immediately. Like it's not like they was calculating or writing this stuff down. They just wanted to get any black America in and out of there. You know, like I posted something yesterday about a lady named Fanny. And I just learned this yesterday that at the time, President um, Johnson, I think his name, (laughs) didn't want her on the air because he realized how intelligent she was. And he went on air just so they could take her off the air because everything she was speaking that was happening in Mississippi was accurate. He didn't do that when Dr. Martin Luther King was speaking. They was at the exact same assembly and he didn't do that. He listened to what Dr. King had said, but when she got up, she hit every bullet point on the nail and that was a threat to him. But what he didn't realize was that it backfired on him because when it got to the media, the media let it be known that he went on air just to get her off air. And then they went back and played her entire speech. And that's because she had a voice too long to Black Americans and to civil rights movement. And she's major, man. Like, she's, she's, she's incredible. So, yeah. That's what I saw, man. I just saw that, okay, I have a voice and this is what my voice is set out to do. It was my purpose. And I always know I have a deep voice and a very loud voice. I just didn't understand what it was for until now. <laughs> that's that's powerful stuff, man. And it's deep. And when we find our purpose as humans, there's nothing more fulfilling in life. And uh, to walk out there on the other side of that amphitheater and see all those people and know that by you creating this flyer 
you know, first off, running the marathon and just putting deep thought into something. Cause I think that's the piece that people may not grasp. Like it's on that run the day before, you know, you go to the protest, you go run a marathon, you know, and you just, you have all these thoughts inside your head and all this anxiety. And it's like, Hey man, what am I going to do? Okay. That's, that's how I'm wired the same way coffee. Like, what can I do? Like, I've got to do something. I can't sit around on the sidelines. Like, what can I actually do? So you come up with this idea. You create this flyer. You know, you have a call to action. And, you know, 40 to 60 people becomes like 800. So, you know, finding your purpose and realizing that that's, you know, the role that you can play and fulfill you know, not just here in the New York City community, because of the power of social, you know, this stuff spreads, like we share stuff on stories, right? So I've got however many thousand followers I have, you have ever many thousand you have, somebody else has 20,000 or 100,000. That's how stuff spreads. You know, when it goes to Instagram stories and people hear you on the bullhorn or they hear Mitchell Silver or Power talking about Seneca Village or something like that, that's how we learn, Right. And the only way we're going to learn is by continuing to share these stories. So, you know, your idea um, was one to try to get the community together to rally. And sometimes a simple idea of bringing people together just to run, you know, can have so many more layers to it because each one of those runs takes on a different context, right? You're speaking about different things. We ended up our run at Seneca Village. Um, you know, and Mitchell Silver talked about that and, uh, you know, how, um, black people own so much of the land in Central Park because of, um, up, uptown in the park wasn't really developed at that point. Right. I think he was talking about that day. Most of the people were living in the twenties and the thirties around, and that's where most of the development was. And again, another thing, no idea, never heard of it before. Didn't know it existed. So for me, you know, coming out that, that day, that was the first chance I ever had to get to meet you in person. Um, and I knew so many people from the running community out there that day. I showed up by myself, didn't have anybody out there with me. I don't care, man. I ain't shy, man. I am not shy at all. I will come and meet people and talk to people and, and get out there. And um, I just feel like if more people would just come out for something as simple as that, we're not running hard. We're running easy. We're running a casual pace. And if you meet other people, and you listen to their own stories, you know, how this has impacted them, why they're out there. Like, that's how we bring about change, right? You understand like, okay, this person's out here from Queens. This person's here from Long Island. This person's Asian, they're German, they're Italian, they're Jewish, they're white. It doesn't matter. The point is people are really starting to get involved and that's what we need. We need a lot more people to come off the sidelines to get involved. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And, um, you know, that's exactly how we can make this work, right? By the people that come from the sidelines, the people that you, you know, you, I, it's a lot of people that I don't know out there, but with their help, I will get to know them. And, and, you know, and I'm not, I'm not a person that feels like I'm above anyone else. I'm on, I'm on the exact same level. It's just that, you know, this was the idea that I had and we're going to keep rolling with it. You know, like power, like um, power Malou, man, I, I actually feel like power should run for office, you know, like I know what he brings to the table. And that's why him and I, you know, as soon as I came up with it, he was one of the guys I spoke with. Was like, I told him from the jump, man, I need you on my right. You got to be my right hand man with this because 
Yeah, I see what he's been doing for years. You know, me me coming up, man, um, as a runner, before I even start pacing for Nike or whatnot, I was already paying I was paying attention to Power Malou. You know, I was paying attention to Power Malou. I was paying attention to Mike Sace. I was paying attention to Tony Cheung. And I was paying attention to Knox Robinson. You know, and I took some of what they had and created who I am um, as a runner, the coffee way. You know, and um, Power Man, he just... He's such an intelligent speaker and, and he knows everything that he's talking about, you know, from respirations to, you know, to social economics and, you know, racial disparities. Like he, he, he's, he's so like great at what he does. And that's why him and I, we're like um, Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, you know? And in, and in this sense, I let, you know, in this sense, he's Michael Jordan now Scottie Pippen. And that's why we, when we, when we collab, I don't touch what I know he's going to touch. It's not like we rehearsed this thing. It's just that he's such a phenomenal speaker that I'm going to say this because I know power is going to say that. And, and, you know, you you just got to know where you fit in at. And, And then I know where I fit in at when it's me and power up there talking, you know, um, doing these runs or whatnot. And, and I'm very thankful um, for him. Very, very thankful. Like every time I see him, I just look at him like, man, you you need to run. He's probably tired of saying, I'm just like, you need to run for office. Like, stop playing. Like, run for office. Like, we, we need you there. You know you will have it. All these runners voting for you if you decide to do so. I think you're on to something, and uh, that's the point guard in you, Coffee. You know, you know, you know that uh, you both can't be up there saying the same thing, man. You gotta like, you give the mic, you share the mic. You guys have different messages that you're bringing to the table. You have different energies and different styles, but it's it's just powerful, man. That's what I wrote in my post. It was a powerful day. Um, sometimes I write a lot. Sometimes I write one word. I mean, you know, I never know um, how something's gonna affect me. I just know that. I felt better about myself as a human being for being there. Um, and when I missed the first one, the huge one, I was in Vermont running. Um, that was my ninth marathon in nine weeks. I ran 10 marathons in 10 weeks. And um, similar to you feeling like you were called to action, I work in healthcare technology. And when COVID hit, um, so many of my own employees and so many of my colleagues that I work with, doctors and nurses, were just being crushed physically, emotionally, just distraught. Um, just beaten down by working, you know, 16, 18, 20 hours and emotionally being wrecked. And, uh, you know, I said, that's it, man. I was sending meals over to them, like lunches, dinners, bagels, just different things at different times to people I knew. And some of them were people that worked for me. Many of them are not uh, employees of mine. And it just changed everything about how I viewed what was going on with COVID. This was before BLM, you know, took over and and really made center stage news. And I, similar to you, said, I got to do something here, man. I don't know what I'm going to do, but I got to do something. And I knew I couldn't just afford to keep sending meals to all these people. It's not sustainable. So I started a GoFundMe page to feed healthcare heroes. And, you know, for six weeks, because I ran the six majors last year, I ran all six Abbott majors last year. I was one of seven people in the world to do it. And wow. I know a lot of people know me on Instagram because of that, because it's a big deal. Only seven people in the world did it. 
And at 58, I averaged 315 a marathon. So not bad for a 58-year-old dude, you know, oh, run, running right. these races so tight together. But I knew that people knew about that coffee, right? So I knew like if I put the word out the way you did, like, hey, man, can you help out a little bit? Um, you know, people will contribute. And, um, you know, I raised a little over $4,000 and I contributed four of my own. And so I, I delivered about $8,000 in meals during the crisis. And I thought I was done when I hit six. And then Ahmaud Arbery happened and George Floyd happened and everything else happened. So I just kept going, man. I did four more, you know, for BLM. I raised money for a color of change. Um, you know, I shared information, got petitions signed, did a lot of other things. And each week I said, I don't think I could do another one because I just did seven. <laughs> and I was like, I can't do another one. But and and dude, man, I was dying at the end coffee. Like two of them were over 90 degrees when I started. Um, but I got I got a good buddy of mine, uh, Run Love New York, my good buddy Greg Mackin, to run the 10th one with me. My son did 10 miles of the ninth one with me up in Vermont, which was your big, the first one, the huge one that everybody turned out for. And, um, you know, it just made me proud to be out there in Vermont in the mountains, dude, in the middle of the mountains, which is as white a place as, you know, you would find, you know, yeah. there's, there's just not a lot of black people living up in the mountains in Vermont. Right. And there I am running around through the town and there's BLM signs and chalk, you know, chalk signs and things written all over. It made me happy to see that up in the mountains where he was going to college, you know, that black lives matter is making a difference up there, that people are paying attention to it up there, that the students up there and the colleges are paying attention and they're aware of the change that needs to be made. So I got back from the ninth one and I got my buddy Greg to run the 10th one with me. And then I just said, dude, I'm retired for a while, man. And so I took off for a week and I came to your, uh, to your running to protest run. And um, now I'm just back to just regular running again, man. And you know what? It's It's just fulfilling to be engaged in this kind of stuff and be learning more and sharing more because there's so much more that can be done, right? And I think it's more incumbent on the white community at this point to like, you know, dig in more and help more, right? I mean, for real change to come about, you know, that's that's how I feel. Now, I don't know if you agree with that or don't agree with that, but I feel like you know, the black community needs us to really step forward and to just, to do more, man, to just show that we're in this thing together and that we want to help. Yeah, no, I, I, I totally agree. Like, I totally agree. Um, and, and we're seeing that, like, as you look at all these marches, not just the running to protest, but the marches, the BLM marches itself, you see more and more white people out there. And that's, this is the first time I've ever seen anything like that. And, you know, yeah, you know, you, you will never be able to experience it like the way that we do, because we are actually black and we go through this on a regular day basis. But what you guys are expressing is that you sick and tired of seeing us having to go through that. And this is the time now to actually stand up and fight for what's right. And that's what I see doing all these marches. So I applaud you guys for doing that. I applaud you for running the 10 marathons. Like, I, I appreciate that. You sharing what you just found out and, you know, sharing your knowledge with the ones that didn't even think about looking these things up or putting any more, you know, anything to try to figure out what's going on. So I see the difference and we definitely do need you guys because I can tell you now, me personally, 
if the shoe was on the opposite foot, I would be out there doing the exact same thing, whatever it is that I could do to help white America. But it just so happened that that's not the case. And the cases that we're going through now are the same cases that we've been going through for hundreds of years, from the civil rights movement that started all the way till now, you know? And, 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 you know, we just lost, man, um, Congressman John Lewis and Reverend, you know, C.T. Vivian. And they were two men that was on the front line forever. You know, they, they've been on the front line forever. And some people don't even know them, you know. And if they do, they know more John Lewis than they do um, C.T. Vivian. But they both was with Martin Luther King fighting for the exact same thing that we're fighting for now. You know, I, I didn't know them personally, but what I did know was that they were actually fighting for us to making sure that we have more freedom than what they did, you know, during their lifetime. And, you know, uh, I mean, all I can say out loud is, is thank you to them, because without them, a run into protests wouldn't happen. The marches that are going on currently wouldn't be happening. Um with what they started, I'm just going to continue doing my part, which is, you know, running to protest. And, and of course, I, I, I walk with the other protesters as well. Not all of them, but some of them, the ones that I can make it to. But I will continue doing my part um, for sure. But I agree with you um, 110% that I see a change and, and I'm happy that you guys are on our side and that you want things to change for us um, the same way that we've been wanting for all our lives, depending on what age we are today. Yeah. John Lewis was, uh, that man was, he was special. Um, He did some pretty remarkable things. Um, And it'd be nice to see that bridge renamed in his honor Um, you know, I think that would be a great step and I'm pretty sure I signed a petition for that also. And I think that's one of the the truly empowering things of social is that you can literally get people mobilized to sign signatures, to write emails, to, to phone, to phone call to, you know, the police department, let's say in Aurora, Colorado, you know, regarding Elijah or in Louisville with Breonna Taylor, because look, if the pressure isn't kept on, the results don't happen. Okay. And the facts are the charges have not been brought yet. Okay. And you know, you got to keep the pressure on it and look, you know, people, there's just too many people out there. They just want to go back to their own world. They want to go back to the world where Corona doesn't exist. So do I, I'm sure you do too coffee, but you know, we can't put this other stuff out of the front window. It's got to be handled. It's got to be managed. Something has to be done. Charges have to be brought, you know, do a federal investigation, whatever has to happen. There's got to be some outcome, um, that comes from this because, you know, those two cases are the ones that I probably know the most intimately. And, you know, my son's a musician, he's a pianist, he's a composer, he's a conductor. And to think that, that that poor kid, you know, used to go play his violin in the animal shelter, you know, to soothe dogs and cats, you know, cause you know, for their anxiety, you know, he was just a, a gentle soul. You know, he may have been 
a little quirky or a little unusual in personality, uh, and he had anemia, he has to wear a mask. None of those things excuse anybody calling the police. <laughs> and even if they show up, how in God's earth does that ever happen? Just It's just, if you're not able to just think about that, like how could that happen? Why did it happen? And then even after it happens, some of the police that were involved with Elijah's case were like going on social media, like doing photographs, like posting about like maybe how they, how they were choking them and stuff like that. And yet, you know, still we don't have any like resolution to it. So that's why I think like the marathoner spirit, the runner spirit, we need people like that because this is such long-term long haul stuff. It just doesn't happen the way we want. It doesn't happen overnight. And you know, so, uh, you know, my, my famous, uh, sign off of my podcast is stay in the fight, man. I don't know if David Goggins had it first or I had it first, but that's been my hashtag forever. Stay in the fight. And, you know, when I'm out there in a mantra, you know, doing a marathon, we all use some kind of mantra out there, man. And if you ever get into the ultra world coffee, man, you better come up with some mantras, man, because you'll be hallucinating and imagining things and things will be starting to go on. If you start running 50 milers or a hundred miles or stuff like that. But yeah, and this is long term, man. It's a grind and um it's a battle, but we got to keep, you know, keep doing it, man. Got to got to stay in there. Yeah, no, that's what um that's what I'm planning on doing, man. I I will be here forever now. Now, you know, you can't start something and not finish. And the finish line for this, I don't know how long that will be. But I'm in it to the day that, you know, in hopes that I'm around to see it actually you know flourish to what we want and what we've been wanting for years for decades you know for centuries you know like i said as i mentioned before we weren't here when it started but we were born within it and now we at the forefront where we got to take over and do our part and make sure that the next generation does the exact same thing but i'm just praying to god that you know this is all settled um, before the next generation come about. So they won't have to have the exact same worries that we have, you know? Well, that, that would certainly be a, a big goal and certainly something we hope we can get to. Are your children, you know, you have the seven-year-old, is it seven-year-old twins or nine-year-old twins? or um, Seven-year-old fraternal twins, one boy, one girl, and a nine-year-old daughter and a 21-year-old son. Yeah. So I know about the 21-year-old son and the younger one. So are they are the younger ones old enough to appreciate like what dad is up to right now? Are yeah, they like they have no idea what I'm yeah. doing? <laughs> I was gonna say, prob- prob- probably not, man. I was gonna say they, but you know what? In a couple of years' time, coffee, it'll be a pretty cool thing. Cause uh it'll no, be they actually see like they know what Instagram is, so they see like the videos and they think that's cool. <laughs> but you know. You know, I'm just a dad. Yeah, you know, exactly. I, I want to keep it as that. Yeah. And, you know, when they do come of age and they figure it out and they put two and two together, then, you know, that'd be, you know, that'd be a, a cool thing to see and a cool thing to, to actually witness. But they know I'm out there fighting for something. They just don't know the exact of what I'm fighting for. Even when it comes to acting and all that stuff, like, they're proud. They're, they're very proud of what I'm doing. They just don't know the exact of what I'm doing. Yeah. You know, and, and, and their mom pretty much keep them enticed with everything that daddy's doing. And, um, you know, she she keeps them knowledgeable and elevated to what they need to know. And, 
you know, and, and when they, you know, when the time comes, like they are immune to what's going on, like um, the black and white issues. They they do know that. Um, they they was already learning about that to a certain extent before the pandemic hit. And then once the pandemic hit and what happened to Mr. George Floyd, that's when they started having, you know, little small questions um, to their mom. Because once the pandemic hit, you know, they, um, my, you know, my wife, she's from Miami. So they went to Miami at that time to get away from New York. So there was questions that was asked from them to her and she answered them or either I answered them um, verbally through Zoom or whatnot. But they still don't know the, the extent. What I will say is that um, I have a kid, one of them, one of the twins, um, you know, the, the, the boy, his name, is, his name is Cruz. He wanted to be a cop. Every time he saw, you know, every time he saw a cop, he was he outside. He was the happiest. Like, oh, my God, you know, he, he loved wanting to be a cop. Cool. Once he saw what was happening on news and once he started hearing these things, because believe it or not, they're listening. Of course. They're listening. Once he started hearing these things, start seeing these things, that went right out the window. He no longer wants to be a cop, you know, and that didn't come from mommy or daddy. Sure. It from him as an individual understanding what he's seeing, what the cop did or what the cops did to Mr. George Floyd. You know, and I never had that conversation with him. That happened on its own. So they just lost someone who would have been a magnificent cop, you know, for the community. And he doesn't want to do that anymore, any longer, because he see like, he see that whole cop, bad cop thing. And if you're a good cop, the good cops aren't turning the bad cops in. So what kind of cop does that make you? And he no longer speaks about that. Stop. Even when he hears a siren, he doesn't show any type of thrills now because before when he heard a siren, he, whatever it was that he was doing, he would just stop and get happy to hear, you know, the, the woo, 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 woo. no more. So. Well, that's deep. And we know kids, man, they just figure stuff out. Um, even sometimes when we're not, you know, laying it out for them or going through, um, you know, an explanation of like the bigger picture, right? They just kind of figure stuff out and they kind of draw their own conclusions, even at that age, at, at eight, nine years old. And, you know, it's sad, but at the same time, it's a reflection of where we're at. So it's real. Um, and it's not like, you know, you or the missus was putting an imprint on them saying, you know, nope, cops are bad. You don't want to go down that road. You don't want to do that. That's not the case at all. Um, but the only thing we can hope for is that some real change comes about and, you know, who knows, who knows what they're going to want to be when they get older. No one knows, you know, how these things, how these things will come about. One thing I definitely wanted to talk to you about, because you are super connected in the run community, you know, with your Nike run pacer days and all that. Um, of late, we've been seeing, uh, you know, like representation issues with runner's world and different things and, you know, trying to see, you know, more people of color, in the magazine, right? In the ads, them. I mean, I'm saying on the cover, let's say, because yeah, for years, you know, black athletes have been inside ads and advertisement and, you know, you have a lot of experience in the publishing and magazine industry as well. You know, you had your acting 
uh, before you got into your acting stuff, you know, that's, you started off doing fashion and working in the magazine business. So I'm sure you understand circulation numbers and advertising revenue and all that kind of stuff. But um, how do we get more representation in the sport? How do we get more broader coverage, you know, that's, that's more diverse? Like, I mean, do you think about this stuff? Because you know, it's, you know, runner's world to me, it's like total bullshit personally. Um, they just haven't stepped up in a long time. And, um, you know, I was happy to see that they did a piece on you recently. Um, yep. now I don't know if that was just for the online version or the print version hasn't come out yet because we both know they're usually lagging a couple of months behind. Is that also going to be in the print magazine as well? They actually, um, they actually reached out. There is, there will be a piece in their print magazine um, for, I'm not exactly sure what month, but when it comes to runners where I totally understand what everybody is saying um, because of their, you know, lack of representation um, in the past and currently. But what I also think is that we have to see if they actually going to stand up to what they say they will change. And in order to see if they're going to change, we actually have to stand back to allow that to happen because it's not like it's going to happen tomorrow. Now, um, I know that they have changed to a certain extent because they have reached out to me and I will be having conversations with, you know, their runner in chief. Um, they don't call them editor in chief. I, th I think that's a dope name, runner in chief for a running magazine. So I will be having uh, a conversation with him and a couple of other people that represents that magazine. So I think they're willing to take that step. And now we just have to see how willing they are to take that step. And that just go and that goes for, you know, everyone that needs to change because there are so many companies, man, that um, if you say, let me see your board, how many people of color, black people you're actually going to see on that board? Like, and with that being said, you know, that's a lack of representation right there across every platform, whether it's music, whether it's running, whether it's acting, like we all know how Hollywood is as well, you know, and that's something that I'm tackling as an individual myself. So runners world, we just got to see what the future looks like for them and everyone else that knows that, okay, they need to make that change. Now, should they have made a change before this came about? Of course, they should have. Um, I used to work for a music magazine, like you said. I was a fashion editor there for 10 years. So being in those meetings, you know, it was a hip hop magazine. And being in those meetings, I understood the criteria that we had to, you know, look for and put on the cover of the magazine as well as the fashion pages within the magazine. But that also included, didn't matter what race you were, if you can rap, you could rap. And if we felt like you had a career, we didn't care if you was black, white, brown, orange, red, you know, it, it didn't matter. So yes, it should have been something that was corrected before any of this has gotten to where it is today. But now we just have to take a step back to see if they will correct the matter. And if they do, then we just gotta let it be. If they don't, then we can continue calling them out. 
I think that's a great way to look at it because um, we do have to give uh, some of these organizations, uh, big running shoe company brands time to adapt. Um, no. But at the same time, throwing money at it isn't, isn't the answer either. Okay. You got to give people a voice. You got to give them a chance to tell their stories, whether it's in the magazine or whether it's sponsorship of athletes. Um, you know, even just down to, if you look at just say distance running, we're long distance runners. We like to run marathons or even longer. You know, you just don't see a lot of representation here in the U.S., you know, in terms of like people of color, like we got to get more people involved in our sport. I think in the women's Olympic trials, man, there might've been two women of color running in that entire race, maybe two, three, something like that. It was a very, very, very low number. And the women had a huge field because they crushed it. The women's distance runners like literally killed it over the last couple of years. I mean, I'm, I'm proud to see um, what the ladies have been throwing down in terms of times and how much faster and stronger they're getting. And uh, they're just killing it. Um, not that the men aren't running great times or anything either, but I just think collectively, you just see the women as a group, there's like so many more running these super fast times and so many teams like working together um, and pushing each other, you know, which we know that's what we're all about, right? Getting Getting together for organized workouts, doing track workouts, doing long runs with pace, getting together on the weekends. You know, that's how we push each other. That's how we get faster. That's how we have better results. And you know all about that from your coaching days, my friend. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Those were the days, man. Yeah. I totally, um, I totally agree with you in, in, in training when I was training these people for marathons, but you know, that, that was actually stopped because of the pandemic as well, because usually with Nike, we was training, we would train. Well, well, you know what, before project moonshot, we were all year round when it was Nike uh, run, run Nike NYC. It was all year round. It was every it was every Wednesday, Saturday, and Sunday for me. And um that was all year round. Then they stopped that and then they came up with Project Moonshot to train for the different marathons. And then for this past one, it was Project Fearless, which was the first year for Project Fearless, because we was just training for um the Brooklyn Half. And right at the beginning of March is when, you know, it, we had to stop because of the pandemic hit. So, and once the pandemic hit, that's when um, everything just started going disarray, you know. And and we had to, you know, get it up out of there and make sure that, you know, people understood what the coronavirus was. Because if I'm not mistaken, California had a marathon and I think that was that could have been the very last marathon, and they was accustomed to what was already happening because within that marathon, they already put out guidelines to stay six feet away from the runner beside you or in front of you. And I remember we was like, "Why bother having the marathon if yeah we know how to social distance?" So yeah, that's that's not the problem. But what I'm getting to is that with that many people, there's no way you could tell someone to stay that far apart, especially when the idea of a marathon is to win, you know? And, and once that marathon was over, that's when um, Nike came about and was like, hey, yeah, we got to X this. Like, this, we got to stop. We got to stop training. 
So, and I trained over thousands of people um, my years with Nike. Um, but I never discredit, I never want to take the credit of that because every runner that runs a marathon, they actually have it within themselves. They just need somebody to help them push a little harder than they would as an individual. And you and I know we're at our best when we run with people as when we do solo. Um, Solo running, man, is so hard. Like I used to run solo and I thought this was the best thing ever. But then when I start running with people, I realized me running solo was like the worst thing ever because it makes you run with people. It makes you run. You can run the exact same miles, but it makes you run go quicker. You, you end up having conversations that, you know, you never thought you would have. And you're running at a pace where, you know, you can actually converse with whoever it is within the group. And that's what makes it like family oriented because you trust each and every individual that you're running with. You wouldn't run with someone that you don't trust because like me, I like running places where I don't know about. So I have to trust this individual to take me to wherever to discover, you know, parts of New York that I've never seen or never heard about. And that's going to get me excited to run 15 miles from where I'm at now, because now that with no marathon training, you can't just say coffee, let's go run 15 miles for what? Like what are we running for 15 miles? Why, why? Like, tell me <laughs> where are we running to and what's there that's going to make me excited? What's going to make me feel like a, a baby in a candy store? Because if you don't have that, then coffee ain't running. Like not 15 miles. Like you got to come up with something. <laughs> there's there's, there's got to be a bigger picture thing in there, right? Yeah. It got to be a part of New York that I absolutely don't know anything about. It got to be on the ground. You know, I like the grittiness of New York. So it has to be something that's going to spark, like spark my interest and make me just want to sit there and be in awe. That's that's a good segue into, uh, I can talk to you about a couple of things I heard on some of your pods. So I know you used to rock almost all your miles on the treadmill, almost 100% or maybe 100%. And I'm trying to remember exactly what you said, but I just literally was laughing out loud because you were like running on a treadmill and then you ran outside and it was like pouring rain and then you had to go back on a treadmill and you're just like, no, I ain't running on this thing no more, man. It seems like it takes twice as long. And yeah. that's the thing. Like you like conditioned yourself to run on the treadmill to start. So you could, it wasn't like most of us who come to the treadmill, maybe when they're injured or it's snowing out or, you know, like they can only run at night at 11 o'clock and it's the only place where maybe they can go is they can go get the gym, get something at Equinox or whatever. Like, and most people are like, no, the treadmill. I don't want to run in there. But you were you were rocking all your miles on there, 15, 16-mile runs, doing them all the time. Then all of a sudden, you got the taste of the outdoors, man, and, and see what it was like. And you're like, no, man, I don't want to go back the other yeah. way, man. So, yeah, man. It was, it was um, like, I remember like yesterday, it was, that was actually my wife's doing. Um, she was the one who was trying to get me to come to the gym. And I was like, no, I'm good. You know, I don't need to go to the gym. And then she finally talked me into it. So, you know, she went and did her thing. And the one thing that I said, all right, you know what? I just start running, you know, because I was always an in-shape guy anyway. And I knew I had to run at some point. So I was like, you know, I'm going to just do the treadmill. Start doing the treadmill. Fell in love with the treadmill. And I was like, oh, okay. You know, and I'm playing ball too. You know, I'm playing the Nike Pro-Am League. 
So, so it's working for me. You know, I'm getting back into top shape. You know, I'm playing Nike Pro-Am. And now, you know, everything is back to feeling like college again. And I kept running the treadmill. And, and man, this is where I was losing my mind at. I would go, I would run early mornings, eight miles. And then at night, I would go back the same day and run another eight miles. And during the first couple years, I didn't understand nutrition. And it caught up with me on, on the treadmill. It caught up with me to the point where I passed out on the train a couple of times because I didn't understand the nutrition part of it. You know, the nutrition as a runner is kind of different than nutrition from a basketball player. And once that happened, man, once that happened, I started, you know, asking questions or whatnot. And then I had a friend of mine who kept coming and saying, yo, you got to come run outside. You got to come run outside. You know, they got these runs on Tuesdays and Thursdays at Nike Town. And, you know, let's do it. And I was just like, man, I ain't running with no people, man. I'm, you know, this treadmill, is, it, you know, it serves its purpose. Like, this treadmill is the best thing ever. You know what I mean? Like, like I done lost a tremendous amount of weight. Not that I was big, but I'm just saying, like, I'm slimmer. I'm right where I want to be. I'm happy. I'm older, so it's kind of hard to change my ways. You can't tell me nothing. But he kept coming. He was very persistent about it. So I went and ran with people. And when I went and ran with people, I realized the seven miles that we ran was over in a flash. Then the eight miles that I would do on the treadmill, it felt like I was on the treadmill forever. <laughs> so then I start kind of easing, running outside a little bit, still going to the treadmill, still running outside. And then it rained. It was raining heavy one day. And I was like, all right, I'm going to just go to, you know, Fort Green Fitness. It used to be Fort Green Fitness. Now Crunch bought it out. So I was like, all right, I'm going to go to Crunch. Went to Crunch, pulling outside, got on the treadmill, and this thing probably got to like 0.56. And I was done. I was like, oh, I can't do this anymore. Like, I'm in one spot seeing the exact same thing over and over again. The music is what used to help me on the treadmill, but it couldn't help me anymore. So I just literally stopped, got off the treadmill, left, Discontinued my membership with Crunch. Like, that's the only thing I was using it for. Discontinued that and just kept running outside. And then I start running in the rain. And I realized running in the rain is the best time to run. Yeah. I never thought that. Like, even when I'm, say, even when I had colds or was sick back in the day or had a headache, for whatever reason, running in the rain helped all of that. It It became... Running outside and running in the rain became medicine to me. And that's where I'm at with it um, today. So outside has taken over. You can never, ever, ever get me back on the treadmill. That's, that just won't work. From the treadmill king to outdoors only and running into elements, man. You're speaking my language, man. You're totally speaking my language. That's the best story, man. You go like 0.5, 0.6. You're like, I'm fucking out of here, man. Yeah. Peace out. Forget membership. It's over. Coffee's yeah, out. <laughs> See you later. It's a wrap. Yeah, my treadmill days are over. There'll be no more miles on here. It's, it's great. And uh, so your evolution with Nike and Project Moonshot, you built a big following there. You coached like tons of runners and helped them get to their goals. And I know a lot of people were, you know, putting that thought in your ear, like, hey, man, are you going to start your own run club? You're going to do your own thing. And 
you know, so I, I know that that's probably where the seed was planted. So is that where it all kind of came to be when you decided to, you know, you know, get defined New York run club, you know, found that thing, get it off the ground. Was it more or less from lots of people saying that they wanted to do more with you? Like, is that how it kind of came to be? Yeah. Yeah. It was, it, it was that because each and every year once Moonshot was over, there were so many people that was actually coming up to me asking me, what was I going to do? Where was I going to run? And I would just be like, ah, I don't know. I'm going to choose, you know, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I don't know. And I always had in the back of my mind to start something, but I just didn't know what that something was going to be or when that something was going to happen. And then the last Project Moonshot is when I was like, you know what? All right, this is what I'm going to do. So I met up with some friends and told them, and they was all on board. And, you know, and they, they already knew that I was like more of a adventurous runner, like taking them places that, you know, even when we was, training for Project Moonshot, I will always run off, you know, the grid of what that, <laughs> of what it, where we're supposed to run as long as I hit the, the water stops, you know, it's just showing them things. And that's what keeps me happy. And that's what keeps me enticed with running. So I knew it would be the same thing to them. And they all loved it. So they all came, you know, they all follow and became members of um, my run club. And just like you said, you had this hashtag that you was talking about not too long ago in this interview. Well, you can go all the way back to when I first started running outside. I had this hashtag that said define New York. And I realized I was the only one using that hashtag, but I didn't know what that hashtag meant. I just knew that me running outside, I was finding these places. I didn't know that that would become the name of my run club, Define New York Run Club. And it actually makes all the sense in the world. You know, we are defining New York parts that, you know, a lot of times when you train, you run commercial places because you know those places are safe, especially when you have a group of runners running behind you. But with Define New York, we run in in-between streets, streets that people don't know about, people that don't know about the architecture of this building versus the opposite side of the street where you, it looks it doesn't look like it's from New York. Like that's what we're about with um My Run Club. And you know, we invite each and every one, like whoever wants to be a part, you know, come through and run with us. So that's how, yeah, that's how it came about with people coming up to me asking me and me saying, all right, you know what? Enough is enough. Coffee. Do something. Start one. And I did. And you know, Got some cool people um, running with me. We're a team. You know, I don't just look at Define New York as mine. I look at it as a team, like kind of like how I did when I was um, training people at Nike. Yeah, I'm the leader, but, you know, I'm always listening to what people are saying and where they will want to run to. Like I always give people those options, even with, you know, like I said, with Nike. Like, okay, where y'all want to run to today? Yeah, we're going to get to point B. But is, is there something that you guys want to see? If not, then I got something to show you. We're going to just take this little turn, make this right, make this left. And then once we make this next right, we'll be, be right back on track to get to the water stop. That's what we do at Define New York, just showing people different places that they were never known of or that they may have heard of but didn't know how to get there. Well, I realized that running, I have learned Brooklyn more by running than I did by driving or by a map. My two feet is what has gotten me to know different addresses. So when someone gives me an address and they say, hey, you got to come here, 
I'm already calculating in my head, oh, I've been by there because that's where such and such was at, or that's because, you know, that's where this mural was at. And it was only three miles away. So can I, well, if it's, if it's cool outside, like in the city, which are before the pandemic hit, I had a lot of meetings in the city. If it's nice and cold outside, I would run to my meetings. I wouldn't even take the train because that was just a substitute to go ahead and get some of my run in. And, you know, and I already knew how many miles um, I would be away from wherever that destination would be. So that's, you know, that's that's how, you know, that's what I love about running. And that's why I define New York, um, how I define New York when club was discovered for those reasons. That's super cool because you're basically giving them tours of unique places. You're hitting the back streets. You're exploring architecture, checking out graffiti, building design, all these things that are of interest to you. And you're you're uh, broadening people's horizons, man. We're creatures of habit, coffee. You know that. Like if you're going to go do a run, like I run for Central Park Track Club. So yeah, we have our organized runs. And you know, depending on the time of the year, it's Tuesday, Thursday, or our workout days and longs are Saturday, Sunday. So, you know, we, in the winter, we're up at the armory, you know, in the summer, we're down at East 6th street on the track and other, other runs, a tempo run. So to me, I got the nickname mayor of central park because I locked so many miles in there and I love my park, man. I love doing the miles there, but I'm not living in the city anymore. I still work in, you know, I have an office in Times Square and I'm there like pretty much almost every day, but I'm in Weehawken now. So I'm on the river, you know, facing New York and I got the best of all worlds, man. Cause if I want flat runs and I don't want no Hills, I could run to Jersey city. I could run up to Fort Lee and, and those 10 marathons I ran, I ran, you know, multiple marathons just in central park. I ran, I heard you talking about running through times square and uh, it's funny because I had a guest on. We were talking about I Am Legend. That's exactly what I felt like when I was running through there. I mean, I was waiting for those dogs to come chasing me or something else because it's crazy. There's no one there, man. There is literally no one there. Whether you're running in the daytime or the nighttime, and my office is right there. It's uh, you know 43rd and Broadway, right next to the NASDAQ headquarters, right there in the center of Times Square. So and we're on the 10th floor. We got great views of all of Times Square. And you know, when you grow up around here and you've worked your whole adult life here, to be able to run through there and have no humans there, it's remarkable, man. And run down by you know the Trade Center and all of the memorials down there and have no one there. It's eerie, man. It does feel like I am legend, man, for sure. Uh, but that's, that's the part you got to take advantage of, right? With all the negative stuff from the pandemic, Hey man, we're never, we're never going to get to have these streets to ourselves again like that. That's, I hope not anyway. Yeah, no, that, 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 uh, um, that'll never happen again, man. But, um, I mean, I hope, like you said, I hope not. I, you know, I can't predict the future, but I, I hope not. But that's the first time I ever witnessed Times Square that way. And, you know, it's, it's from sad events. Um, the reason why it was that way. But seeing it that way was, it was great, like, for me, like, you know, all the lights. My only thing was, wait, people are still paying for these lights to be on. (laughs) (laughs) Like, when you think about it from a commercial standpoint, you know, advertising standpoint, people were still literally advertising through the pandemic, knowing that nobody's going to be in Times Square. So yeah, that's why I was running through there, man. And, and, and you know, and as a filmmaker, can you imagine the things that I was thinking about? It's like, I was just like, wow, like you can guerrilla style 
the shit out of some films right now. Like you would never get Times Square like this. So I was trying to figure out, man, how could, I mean, I never did it because, you know, it was such a serious time with the pandemic and with what happened um, during the pandemic. So it, it never came to fruition, but me just stopping there, sitting down, looking at these lights saying, man, this is like, you know, Times Square was cut off and the securities are over there and all the lights are here. And you, it's not like you needed extra lights for to, to film a scene. All the lights was coming from the advertising. But so I'm hoping, you know, someone took advantage of that. Yeah, that's uh, that's interesting. And, you know, I'm sure you're, that's the way your mind would work, you know, as a filmmaker. You're right, man. I'm I'm running through there with my fo- with my phone, you know, getting some run selfies and you know, getting a little video clip and some other stuff. And I'm just like, this is this is once in a lifetime. And you know, yeah, I've run through there a bunch of times since then. But just all the great buildings of New York to be able to run without any humans around, you know, it's just it's such an odd and eerie feeling. Um, but you know, like that's what I've told my friends that live far away. I'm like, I'm, I'm going to take advantage of that stuff. You know, I'm running over to George Washington bridge and there's like nobody, normally there's a million cyclists and, you know, like all kinds of foot traffic. There's like nobody, you know, and I'm just cutting up by the armory and just heading downtown and, you know, just like all those miles logged in all this different weather, you know, with no people around. It's just, it's just something we're just never going to get used to ever. Yeah. We're not, I don't think. I mean, I, 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 I don't know, but I don't think we'll ever see Times Square like that again. That was, that was a sight to see. That was a sight to see. Yeah. I mean, even Wall Street area, that's still kind of like empty. You know, people are still kind of iffy, you know, if, if they should be there. It kind of reminds me of 9-11, man, when 9-11 occurred which was another sad of events, right, that took place. Um, but it kind of reminded me of that time because you were so, I mean, it was different matter, but you were so fearful of being in those areas because if that could happen, you know, with the buildings and in, in, in down by Wall Street, what could happen on Midtown, what could happen in Midtown or Central Park? So New York, people started leaving the city, which which what's supposed to be the greatest city in the world, right? People start leaving what's supposed to have been great. And now you see that it's not that great after all. Like, you know, there's no knock to New York. It's a great place to be. But I don't think New York was ready for what happened with this pandemic. And now all of a sudden, New York has become people's second home as opposed to first home. I definitely think uh, there's a lot of truth in that. And um, people have uh, been displaced. Uh, people that have a second home or somewhere else they can go have, have already packed up and left a while ago. Uh, yeah. Some some of us don't have five homes or 10 homes. Some of us are the working folk like us. And we're just, we got to keep our nose to the grindstone. And, you know, like I'm, I'm happy that I've been here throughout it. I've learned a lot um, with this, this whole experience. And, um, it's just been, a, it's emotional, man. I just think we're all, we're all just so beaten down by all of these events. And, um, you know, I think that we got to just draw strength from each other, man, from connections like this, you know, you and I talking what you've done, you know, and run to protest, bringing all those people together, man, you should be real proud of that, man. Seriously proud of that because, 
you know, like somebody out there might have had an idea like that, but they didn't actually bring it to life. They didn't put the word out. They didn't explain what the purpose was. They didn't create something different in each run. Like there's a lot of thought that went into that. It was not just something simple like, hey man, let's all come out and run and, you know, sing Kumbaya, <laughs> you know, like there's, there's a real purpose to it. Um, yeah. So you should be proud of that for sure. Uh, thank you, man. Nah, I, I, I appreciate it. Um, there's, like I said, the, the, the main purpose is to bring awareness um, to who we are as people and also um, educate people to where we come from. Because you never get to where you're going unless you know where you're coming from. And that was another you know, life lesson that I always knew of by growing up you know, through my grandparents. So that's something that um, I wanted to do. And that's what I'm, I'm making sure that these running to protest, all crews, one crew um, runs, um, take from. And, 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 you know, and the all crews, one crew come from, I'm a major fan of the movie, um, The Warriors. And I don't know if you've ever seen that movie. Um, I haven't. Oh, man. The I'm, put, I'm putting it on my list now, though. Yeah, like The Warriors was a film that was made in um, 1979, directed by Walter Hill, I believe. And um, it was about New York City gangs. And um, what this one character named Cyrus um, wanted to get all the gangs of New York to meet at one place, you know, and discuss, you know, try to get all these gangs to, to get along or whatnot. But it ended up it ended up being that when the gangs came to this you know final destination to hear what Cyrus had to say, um, Cyrus got popped. You know, someone shot him, and they said that the Warriors did it. So the Warriors had to try to figure out how they could get back from the Bronx to Coney Island at that time in 1979. So you know, it was New York was gritty, which I love. That's that's what I love about New York. It's I mean. It's losing its originality to me now because it's, you know, it's not as gritty as it once was. And I always loved the graffiti. But when you watch this movie, you're going to love it, man. Like, obviously, I was a very young kid in 79, but I loved the movie that I watched it so many times. So the idea really was call all the run crews. Um, kind of like how Cyrus did in the Warriors by calling all the gangs at that time, but also um, making sure that, you know, no sponsorship is surrounding my idea because I know how some people could get when it comes to, oh, well, this sponsor is sponsoring. I don't want to do anything, you know, and, and really, truly knowing that they want to be a part of it, but because they sold sponsorship you know, invested, although the sponsorship that they so invested in is probably not paying them. They just invested, you know, that they don't want to attend. And I needed everybody um, that could attend to attend this thing because we're trying to save people's lives, man. This is bigger than running. You know, this is bigger than a sponsorship. And that's why um, I wanted to make sure that no one have any excuses to not come to this thing. And I tackled it and it came to fruition. And I thank God that it did what it did 
and leading people like you to go speak to other people that have no knowledge of, you know, what's what's actually behind the Breonna Taylor case and the the Amar Arbery case and the Elijah McClain case. So that was the whole idea of the reasoning. I'm sorry, that was the reasoning of having um, these runs. And we're going to continue doing it as well, once a month. Well, you kept it pure by keeping the sponsorship out of it. It's not even just about money, but it's about position and viewpoint. And this is your thing. And it's not somebody else's. So whether it's Nike, Adidas, or somebody else, you know, who knows what sort of spin they're going to want to try to put on what's going on. And you don't want anybody changing the vision of what you're after in terms of who's going to speak at the events and, you know, where you're going to do the runs, where you're going to finish, like we finished up in Seneca Village. So, you know, kudos, kudos to that, man, because you had the vision because you're right. The minute you start to allow some of those uh, things to occur, then things can get diluted quickly. And then you're right. Then maybe people are going to say, well, man, I'm no fan of Nike or I'm no fan of this brand. And, you know, you're right. Then maybe you lose a couple of people along the way. So, um, yeah, it was good that you had a pure vision on it and control. So I wanted to jump to about the people, your film yeah, and get into that. Um, and you know, I just have to say that I was on a run, you know, listening, you know, to your pod and I'm trying to remember if it was in the behind the wheel pod with Derek or if it's in the runners in New York city pod, because obviously you discussed it with both of them. So I can't say for sure, but you know, there I was on the run and, you know, basically heard you talking about, you know, your son and, uh, you know, his curfew at the time, I believe was 10 o'clock. Hopefully I'm getting this right. And, you know, please coffee. If I'm not, you just call me, call my ass right out on it. But I'm pretty sure it was 10 o'clock and, you know, used him coming home at 10 o'clock and you were even making a joke. Like he was asking you what time his curfew was. And all of a sudden your son starts coming home at eight o'clock. Well, I just have to say good job by dad because, you know, hey, man, there's some dads out there that are in their own fucking private Idaho and ain't paying attention to their kids and and just don't give a shit, right? So you care enough, you notice it, and it's like, hey, wait a minute, why is my son coming home at 8 o'clock and he's got a curfew at 10? I think you even made a joke about, man, maybe you should have, you should have changed this, you should have like had the discussion about the curfew a while ago, but so yeah. Like that leads you into the discussion and I'm not going to say anymore. You, you take it from there about like how that conversation evolved, because I got to say, man, it stopped me in my tracks on that run. You know, like I just literally stopped right at that moment here and you, you know, talk about that and then, then that path that it led you on. So why don't you just take it from there? No. Um, yeah. Um, when four years ago, he was about to be a senior and, um, his freshman, sophomore, and junior year of school um, in the summertime, he actually had a 10 o'clock curfew. And, you know, and I knew what he was doing. They would play ball, you know, Brooklyn Bridge Park. They leave their lights on to midnight, you know, and all these kids from different neighborhoods go down there. You know, think of it as when you and I were growing up, um, arcade rooms, you would go to the arcade room in the mall or wherever they have them, and you would meet different people your age that you never knew before because of, you know, the different school zones or whatnot. So that's how Brooklyn Bridge Park, Brooklyn Bridge Park was on the basketball court. They was meeting all these other basketball players, you know, and they were becoming friends or whatnot. 
and they were all playing ball together. So I knew where he was at and his cut free for the first three years were, um, was 10 o'clock. And then when his senior year came about, right before his senior year, he asked me for a curfew. And I was like, well, you know, let me see what time you think you should come home. And I didn't give him a time, but I knew he was wiser, knew he was smarter, and I knew he was older. And I knew he would be doing the same thing he's been doing, you know, because he lo- he, you know, he's fascinated by basketball. Um, really good. And um, playing ball. And um, before you know it, <laughs> the, the first, you know, make a long story short, the first three nights, man, he um, was coming home at 8, 8.30. And I just thought something was weird about that because I didn't give him a curfew. And, you know, and the joke that I made was, well, damn, if that's the case, you know, I should have said, um, let me see what time you should come home as freshman, sophomore, and junior. Because <laughs> he was coming home to, earlier before the curfew time that I, you know, gave him in the past. And, man, and then um, that third night, I just stopped him because I thought, you know, some, somebody was bothering him down there. And, you know, I didn't mind going down there to converse with whoever it was that was bothering him. But, you know, when I asked him what the deal was, what the problem is, and he just said, Dad, um, you know, me and my friends are making sure we get home before dark. Well, me and my friends are making sure we make it home before dark so we can make sure that um, we don't get killed by the cops. And I knew that came from the Trayvon Martin case, you know, um, Tamir Rice, Michael Brown, you know, like I said earlier, um, kids pay attention to this stuff. And I knew that's where it was coming from. So I didn't have an answer for him. That was the first time as a father, I didn't have an answer for him. And I still didn't. I didn't answer that thing for a while because it's something that you can't sugarcoat as a parent. You know, you can sugarcoat a fight. You can sugarcoat if they fall down where you're going to fall a lot more times. If you fight, well, what did you learn right in that fight? Um, first of all, you shouldn't be fighting, but you know, since you already fought, you know, <laughs> um, you know what to go back with if you fight again. You know, I don't, you know, condone that, but I'm just saying this is something that you couldn't sugarcoat because I couldn't say what well, is not gonna happen to you. And that's where it becomes very, 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 very real and different when it comes to color. Because we have to worry about those things. Um, white America don't have to worry about that. While I'm speaking to you here today, I know I got to go outside um, later on. And I have to worry about the minute that I leave my steps, if I'm going to make it back. And while I'm outside, I have to make sure that the exact same way I carry myself the day before is the exact same way that I carry myself today so I can make it back in one piece and alive to continue being a father and continue raising my kids the appropriate way. Those are things that as black and people of color have to worry about every single day. And man, it's, it's, it's tiresome that we have to worry about that, but we do. And for him, um, I went on a run and while running, like two months after that had happened, um, that's where I came up with the idea of writing a short film and letting this film not just be an answer to him, but to every Black person and people of color that's going through the exact same things. Because you, you got to say to yourself, 
if this teenage boy is going through that, through that, can you imagine how many other teenagers are thinking the exact same thing? And that's that was a problem. So writing this short film, it had to be as real and authentic as possible. I'm different. I wanted to tackle it from a different perspective. I didn't want to show a cop killing another black person or a person of color because people already done that. We already seen that live footage and that did nothing for us. These cops still got off. White supremacists are bigots. They still got off. So how could this be different and how could this relate to not just the time that we're in now, but forever? How could this be a piece that could speak whether you was in the 1940s or 2016 or 2020, where we at today? Let's make this current and can live until the day that we actually see that everything is equal, being that that's what you've been preaching to us for so long. And um, while writing it, I had to make sure that that's how authentic we came off. And I called another writer who I, I'm fond by, and him and I know each other, and told him, gave, told him my idea, and he was on board. And we made sure that um, we tackled this thing the appropriate way. And and once we filmed this thing, man, we got um, very recognizable actors involved. Um, not that they needed to be, you know, hot A-list actors or any of that, but people that I had in mind writing it. Because when I write, when I script anything, I always got to have somebody in mind that helps me with the dialogue. So the people that we had in mind, we actually got, and they understood because they had something to say as well. And um, those two days of filming, man, those two days were so emotional with everyone that was on set because we knew that, yeah, this is another job, this is a film. But what we also knew is that this shit is real. Like when we walk outside these doors, we protect it now because we're on set filming. But when we walk outside these doors, we're just another black man walking around, which to white America, they can look at us as a threat. And depending on where you are, if anyone feels threatened, they can just come up to you and murder you and say that they felt threatened because of the color of our skin. So that's how real it was um, writing about the people and that's how and why about the people um, came about. And, and, and Ron, even when um, we premiered this thing, I didn't know how the people was gonna react towards it. Like I already seen it thousands of times, but you know, it's what's in your heart and how you feel. And as long as you've been authentic, then you know, nothing was sugarcoated within the short film. And when we premiered this thing at Martha's Venues Film Festival, was the first one of July of last year, July 2019, I got a standing ovation. Um, with all these other films. And that's when I knew, I mean, I knew before then that I had something, but that's when it was solidified that, okay, this is something real. Then it went to Holly Shorts and then it went to Bronze Lens and then, you know, it went to all these different film festivals and um, Newark Film Festival, International Film Festival. And and when the film won, 
the, some of the awards, I couldn't show excitement. Like, not because, you know, I was forced, but, you know, about the people was forced to be written, first of all. But when I won the awards, I couldn't walk up and say, oh, yeah, thank you this, thank you that. I thank God. And then I just encourage people to watch the film because of how real it is. It's nothing to, don't applaud me for it. You know, take this as a lesson and go learn what we're talking about. That's how you can thank me. Uh, I'm appreciative of the awards. But man, there were so many lives that we lost due to what we're talking about that I can't even be happy about winning the awards. So the awards, you know, usually when you get an award, you would show it on your metal case and, you you know, you would put it here. Those awards, uh, I can't even tell you where they are in the house because that's, I'm not like, I'm not showcasing that I want anything. What I'm showcasing is about the people and for people to go watch this and you can learn a thing or two while watching it and then just be aware of the topics that we're actually discussing. And that's just how real. And if anybody feel uncomfortable watching it, then that's what it was meant to do. Um, But it was also, you know, you got to understand, I've been feeling uncomfortable my entire life being stared at because of the color of my skin. Um, You only like me when I score a basket, you know, um, same thing for people with football. Like, you know, you know, there's, there's, there's been, man, some white supremacist people that I know growing up that uh, were in love with Michael Jordan. They were in love with Michael Jackson. You know, they were in love with Michael Johnson. They were in love with Mike Tyson, you know, from afar. But they didn't love Black people. So about the people is one of those things where you just have to watch it and make sure that you understand where we're coming from. And it's not being racist at all. It's just being, it's just truth to what needs to happen. And at the end of the day, what needs to happen for me is that we get back to where we once was as Black Wall Street. And, you know, Black Wall Street, you know, they 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 bought into their community. And that's what we have to do. You know, we have to actually buy back into our community because, you know, we might have a color problem, but there's no bigger color than green. And green changes everything. And I'm a major fan of, you know, the Jewish community. I'm a major fan of the Chinese community. They all understand the value of buying back into their own community. And that's what Black Wall Street was. And that's why Black Wall Street is discussed in this film. And that's pretty much what this film is narrowing itself down to. Um, spoiler alert. But <laughs> but that's what... Um, that's pretty much what surrounds about the people. Just find back into your community, man. Well, I got the chills listening to you talk about that. Because um, I can feel the emotion in, in your words and... You wrote it in 2016, right? And then sure enough, all these other lives are taken right out in 2020. So that's why people have to understand where the fatigue, the frustration, where the anger, where all that sentiment and feeling comes from is like, you know, okay, enough is enough. When are we going to make changes? When are these things actually going to happen? You know, and here it is, you know, your son asks you a question that 
you know, most dads, most moms, we get asked questions almost all the time. We have something ready in our arsenal. We got something we either our mom told us, our dad told us, a teacher told us, the grand, your, in your case, your grandparents. But when we get asked a question, we don't have an answer, you know, so you get out on there a run and you say, man, I got to write about this. I got to do something about this. I got to take action. So, you know, man, kudos to you for that, because, you know, what a journey to go on to you know, to write this piece, to be involved with it, to produce it, to act in it, to, you know, to have so many different, uh, like touch points to the film itself, to, you know, to tell the story and to get it out there. So, um, you know, I'll make sure in the show notes, you know, that people can, you know, get to your page there where they can access the film. Uh, Cause that's just your, your regular about the people Instagram page, right? Or is it, or can they get to it straight through your regular link in that coffee boy as well? Well, they can get to it from, um, the, the link is about the people film.com. Okay. But they can't get to it on about the people film IG yes. as well. It's in the bio of that. It's in the bio. Perfect. And, uh, you know, whenever I do, uh, my producer, uh, you know, does the show notes, Dave, he's great. Um, we link all this stuff up there. So anybody who reads the show notes, whether they're downloading from Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever, all those links will be live in there along with my Instagram post, which I'll make sure has the link to that so people can uh, get to the film. And, you know, man, it's emotional just hearing you talk about it because you're right. You know, you create something like that. Uh, you write this this film and you tell this story and then the the process of getting awards and all, you know, it just, it washes away. It, it has no meaning uh, or not the meaning that most, you know, awards that we earn in our lifetime have, right? When we run a marathon and somebody gives us a medal, it might seem silly to some other person, but it's not silly to any of us, man. When you run and you finish 26 miles in New York and man, you cross over by Tavern on that green, man, that's a special moment. I don't care. You know, I've run 57 marathons. They never get old, man. It never gets old. Like that's a special feeling, you know, when you get that medal, but it just sucks hearing you talk about it, but I appreciate your frankness and, and your candor on a coffee because I could feel that it hurts, man. Like you should feel, um, I know you've got to be proud of what you've done in terms of the work um, and bringing those actors together and bringing that group together to make the film and all that. You got to be proud of that experience, but um, it's just not the same because of what's still going on today. So hopefully by people hearing this podcast today and more people clicking on that link and listening to that film and paying attention here in our conversation, more people are going to be called to action. More people are going to get involved and get off the sidelines and more people are going to do more homework and do more research on what's really going on out there. And that's going to contribute to change because that's what we have to hope for, man. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Um, change is key. Change is key. That's where we have to, um, that's where we have to work on. That's what we have to work on. And change is the only thing that's going to make this work. And we just have to stay grounded to whatever it is that you're going to say you're going to do. Because best believe, action speaks louder than words. And I know a lot of people that speak on this and they have shown no action whatsoever. And for me, that just shows me, you know, that person's character and who's who and what's what. So change is definitely key. And I will continue doing my part um, until I can't any longer. 
And am I tired? Yeah, man. I, I mean, I'm past tired, but you know, when I'm tired, when I run, I keep my feet on the pedal and keep the gas moving. So that's what I'm going to do as a human being, as a black human being, and as a father to my kids, and as a individual. I'm going to keep doing my part because I know my grandparents and my mom, they wouldn't have it any other kind of way. And that's why they taught me what they did at such a young age. And now that I'm of age, I'm going to do, I'm doing the same thing that they did with me. Because again, um, I didn't understand it. I understood to a certain extent growing up, you know, being so young. But as I became older and became wiser, I totally get what they was doing. And I'm thankful for that because now I can share that with, you know, you guys. Well, we appreciate, we appreciate you doing that and, uh, the leadership that you've shown throughout this thing. Um, I think it's, uh, really appreciated by the running community as a whole. I know I see a lot of people, uh, talking about it, sharing about those runs, um, sharing their experiences from those runs, what they got out of it, what they felt was important, uh, what moved them on that particular day. And that's what we just need more of. Um, so if it's going to be once a month, then, you know, we got we to gotta keep that conversation going. But in between those runs every month, yeah, there's lots of, lots of work to continue uh, to be done. Um, and that's what we have to do. And, uh, you know, I'm committed myself as a podcast host, as a runner, man, I want to be a good ally, man. I want to help. Um, this is important, man. This is about equality and, and making change. And, you know, man, if you're not interested in helping, I got no use for you, man. At some point, you got to just realize that people in your life, that maybe they have been your friends for a really long time. And maybe, you know, maybe they're okay people, but deep down, they don't really care about any of this stuff. So to me, at some point, you got to understand that sometimes you got to just cut bait on people. And it doesn't mean you're never going to talk to them again or never speak to them again in your life, but they're just not going to have the same value that you placed on them before. Because you got to care about this stuff, man. You got to care about the planet and the world and making sure that everybody is getting a fair shake and getting treated equally and has a voice at the table. And if you don't care about any of those things, then, you know, you're looking at the world in a, in a seriously twisted way. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I appreciate those words um, from you. Yeah, I totally agree. 110%. All right, Coffee Man, it has been amazing having you on and having you share your story with me and with the Run Chats audience. Before we roll on out of here, you got anything else big, cooking, top of mind that we didn't get to today or something else that you want to, you know, any points that we were covering early in the day you want to finish back off on before we roll out? No, I think we touched everything, man. I would just say that, you know, as I continue um, having these runs, you know, I would like to see more and more people come, you know, and, and, and sit down or stand, whatever it is that we do that day and just listen. And, um, you know, let's just keep it going. That's 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 pretty much it because um, change has to happen and change will only happen with, you know, people constantly coming and believing in what they hear and they knowing what they hear and is truth and power and myself will continue bringing these runs to you every month. Well, that's important, man, because we got to keep 
we got to keep the uh, the momentum up. Um, you know, we got to just keep the pressure on for change. And uh, in these cases with Breonna Taylor and Elijah McLean, and and also in legislation and other things that need to be done, man, we got to get new people elected into office, man. We need political change. We need leadership change. And um, you know, hopefully, it's all going to come together in November. Uh, but in the interim, and I hope you know you got me as an ally, um, I will certainly be putting the word out there for people to come to these runs and also just be involved, man, get educated, learn more about what's happening um, to uh, to help out, to help out and just uh, just be there for other people that need them. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And, and I would say my last words would be strictly arrest the officers who killed Breonna Taylor, knowing that they did the wrong thing. And to see them still out and about doing what they're doing is very disrespectful to us as a race and disrespectful to the country as well um, by saying that it's still A-OK to do those things because it was never A-OK back in the day and now to say that think that it's a-okay and for the officers to go and take photos where you know not photos but to go and, and, and act as if they didn't do anything is is crazy so yes my final words arrest the officers who murder brianna taylor and elijah mclean as well um, and elijah mcclain as well and that was sick that was yeah again another teenager yep yeah. Well, again, Coffee, I appreciate you so much making the time to uh, to sit and chat with me, man. And uh means a lot to me. And I hope every person in my audience is going to get a lot out of this. I hope a lot of people are going to watch about the people and learn more and uh, dig into the situation and get more invested in Black Lives Matter and uh, and yeah. being good allies to help out. Because it's, it's simply the most important thing that we're facing right now in the world. And uh, we all got to come together, man. That's what it's all about. Yes. And in the end, my hope is that love will win, man. That's always my hope. Love win love wins over hate. That's that's what it's all about, man. We gotta we gotta keep that up, brother. Yes, I totally agree. Thank you. All right, coffee. So my signature sign off is we always say peace out and always remember to stay in the fight, man. No doubt. All right. Great talking to you, man. Likewise. Have a good one. Wow. It was such a powerful conversation. I feel so blessed I've had the opportunity to attend the second running to protest event and get the chance to spend some time with coffee and talk with him a bit and meet so many other runners that day that were also very interested in being there that day that are also interested in change and being part of the much needed change that needs to take place in our country regarding systemic racism. Uh, it was uh, a powerful day being out there, seeing all these runners from all different areas and different boroughs come together. If you haven't had the opportunity to attend one of these yet, I know Coffee has a plan to continue them monthly. So please make an effort to get out there and be a part of this thing because so much more change is needed. And I thank Coffee so much for his candor and openness on such difficult topics. Uh, that he shared with the Run Chats audience. It was certainly eye-opening and moving, and I am uh, deeply grateful for him coming on the show and sharing his thoughts with us. 
if you are as moved by this episode as I was, it would mean the world to me if you could take a moment to go on Apple Podcasts and write a review of this specific episode. Tell us what you liked about it, if it moved you in some specific way. Or if you can take a moment to share it in Instagram stories or any other medium you have to other friends um, that need to hear this conversation because nothing could be more important in the world at this moment. So I thank you all for being part of the Run Chats family. Coffee, thanks so much for coming on the show. We appreciate you very much. And I will definitely see you at more uh, events, at more Running to Protest events that'll be going on and taking place. So at this point, I just want to say, um, keep lacing them up, everybody. Keep getting out there. Running is your therapy. So get out that door, lace them up. Peace out, my friends. And always remember to stay in the fight. God bless everybody. Everybody.